Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 187. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Pallavi Katamasu. And Pallavi, there's a tradition on the show that I established with the first co-host, Hector, of reading through and reacting to an advice book of sorts that contains little pearls of wisdom entitled Don't Sweat the Small Stuff by Richard Carlson. And so today, as with previous episodes in this series, if you will, I'm going to be reading some chapters and we will react to them accordingly. So our first is chapter 12, Let Others Be Right Most of the Time. One of the most important questions you can ever ask yourself is, do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? Many times, the two are mutually exclusive. Being right, defending our positions, takes an enormous amount of mental energy and often alienates us from the people in our lives. Needing to be right, or needing someone else to be wrong, encourages others to become defensive and puts pressure on us to keep defending. Yet many of us, me too at times, spend a great deal of time and energy attempting to prove or point out that we are right and that others are wrong. Many people, consciously or unconsciously, believe that it's somehow their job to show others how their positions, statements, and points of view are incorrect, and that in doing so, the person they are correcting is going to somehow appreciate it or at least learn something. Wrong. Think about it. Have you ever been corrected by someone and said to the person who was trying to be right, thank you so much for showing me that I'm wrong and you're right. Now I see it. Boy, you're great. Or has anyone you know ever thanked you or even agreed with you when you corrected them or made yourself right at their expense? Of course not. The truth is, all of us hate to be corrected. We all want our positions to be respected and understood by others. Being listened to and heard is one of the greatest desires of the human heart, and those who learn to listen are the most loved and respected. Those who are in the habit of correcting others are often resented and avoided. It's not that it's never appropriate to be right. Sometimes you genuinely need to be or want to be. Perhaps there are certain philosophical positions that you don't want to budge on, such as when you hear a racist comment. Here, it's important to speak your mind. Usually, however, it's just your ego creeping in and ruining an otherwise peaceful encounter, a habit of wanting or needing to be right. A wonderful, heartfelt strategy for becoming more peaceful and loving is to practice allowing others the joy of being right. Give them the glory. Stop correcting. As hard as it may be to change this habit, it's worth any effort and practice it takes. When someone says, I really feel it's important to... Rather than jumping in and saying, no, it's more important to, or any of the hundreds of other forms of conversational editing, simply let it go and allow their statement to stand. The people in your life will become less defensive and more loving. They will appreciate you more than you could ever have dreamed possible, even if they don't know exactly why. You'll discover the joy of participating in and witnessing other people's happiness, which is far more rewarding than a battle of egos. You don't have to sacrifice your deepest philosophical truths or most heartfelt opinions, but starting today, let others be right most of the time. One of the things that really resonated with me is this dynamic where if we correct someone, then they take it defensively. It's true that in most situations when I've found myself correcting or being corrected, the person corrected never really likes it. That's actually a phenomenon that's in our biology. 
If someone says something that puts our identity into question or our core philosophies into question, it triggers our fight and flight where we feel that we as a person are being attacked. And our reaction is to either fight the aggressive idea or it's to retreat from the conversation and not engage with it further. I have often used the tactic where I say that someone's right with the phrase, you're right, not because I actually think that they're right, but because it demonstrates a respect for what they think. In a way, that's how I show that I'm listening. Even though I might not agree, I don't want to exacerbate an argument. And simply by saying you're right once in a while, I allow myself a window of opportunity to say a point that I think may illuminate a truth because it indicates that I do not want to be an enemy to the person that I'm having a conversation with. One thing that I want to push back on is that I don't think listening is always in agreement. I think you can listen and disagree. It's just a matter of showing that you're not trying to be contentious. I think if you're listening and you disagree, you have to be transparent about your intention. You don't necessarily care about being right. You just want to show a different perspective. And I hope that listening is contagious, that if we're to say you're right once in a while, then the person we're speaking to will also do so. You make a lot of great points there, and I particularly appreciate the remark that listening does not equate to agreement in all circumstances and would offer that in my perspective, listening is a means of absorbing information and not necessarily ideology, which I think is some people's experience of conversation and of absorbing someone else's perspective on things. I also really appreciated his emphasis on the importance of being heard. One of the reasons I enjoy this podcast and other creative expression in my life is because I have feelings and ideas, whether they are articulate, interesting, boring, or even underdeveloped. The experience of expression, I think, is so universally human, and what I feel creates the broader network of humanity is the response to expression, the act of listening. You can be an individual with ideas that you express, but what really makes us a collective, I think, is the fact that others respond to and react to what we put out into the world. Our social network is precisely that, a series of reactions and interactions. I also really love his remark that it's worth at times distinguishing between being right and being happy, because I think happiness is often, in a curious irony, less individualistic than many of us might think. It's less about defining yourself in relation to or contrast to others and more about being at peace with what your current self is doing and where you are in your life. And being right can often be a clarification of identity. You prove how intelligent, artistically minded, or even politically aware you are through the things you dispute and clarify to other people. And while that isn't the worst thing in the world, I agree with his argument that it does create some barriers and unnecessary dissatisfaction that, despite our best intentions, does not inform or educate others, but rather makes them feel lectured or disrespected in some way. Which gets me to my final point of reaction, that he talks about the need to be right and also perhaps the need to make others feel wrong. And I worry about the pervasion of that behavior, which in my observation stems from insecurity, that you've particularly felt criticized in the past. And so rather than working through your own ideals, it is admittedly very easy to tear down other people or, in the context of this chapter, to prove that they are wrong with something you've learned that realistically they may never have encountered before or may never have been taught or exposed to. And he astutely points out racist remarks or other philosophical realms upon which people stand firmly 
to this chapter's insights, there's a way of correcting people when it comes down to particular issues that should be done in a tactful, humanizing, and respectful way, acknowledging the other person's identity and personhood, which I think a lot of us could do more often and think about in more empathetic ways. The next chapter, number 27, imagine the people in your life as tiny infants and as 100-year-old adults. I learned this technique almost 20 years ago. It has proven to be extremely successful for releasing feelings of irritation towards other people. Think of someone who truly irritates you, who makes you feel angry. Now close your eyes and try to imagine this person as a tiny infant. See their tiny little features and their innocent little eyes. Know that babies can't help but make mistakes and that each of us was, at one time, a little infant. Now roll forward the clock 100 years. See the same person as a very old person who is about to die. Look at their worn-out eyes and their soft smile, which suggests a bit of wisdom and the admission of mistakes made. Know that each of us will be 100 years old, alive or dead, before too many decades go by. You can play with this technique and alter it in many ways. It almost always provides the user with some needed perspective and compassion. If our goal is to become more peaceful and loving, we certainly don't want to harbor negativity towards others. My biggest takeaway from that chapter is a dynamic that exists within a conversation. No matter how frustrating or emotionally charged, are temporary. As we grow and learn and realize these mistakes like the hundred-year-old version of ourselves will eventually, we accumulate a slightly different identity, a slightly different skin than our previous. That means that if we engage with the person a second time, it will be a different conversation. In this case, memory does us a disservice. We remember that core emotion in a conversation. Perhaps we're really frustrated with someone who disagrees with us or isn't willing to change their mind. Or maybe we're so passionate that someone else is on the same page with every point. But as time goes on, we forget those points. We forget those nuances and layers. And all we're left with is that core emotion. And unless we return to that person and re-engage, those nuances and layers are never reintroduced. Memory makes these emotions static when relationships with people are dynamic and ever-changing, just as we as individuals are dynamic and ever-changing. So that perspective of being an infant and being a hundred-year-old, where we're constantly making mistakes and realizing that we've made mistakes, perhaps growing from those mistakes or repeating those mistakes, that perspective really illuminates how temporary our dynamics are and how fluid they can be and how much potential there is for them to change. I'm glad you use the word fluid because I think a common error throughout our lives in a variety of different settings and circumstances is to view something as static, which is in fact fluid. And I think people are the epitome of that principle because we are always changing, whether consciously or unconsciously, the world itself is flowing through us and altering what we are, whether in substantial or minimal ways. And I was even thinking as you were responding to this chapter about the opinions we have of other people, where anecdotally you might say, what do you think of person X? And I would give you my take, but that's likely to be of my most recent encounters or experiences of that person and is not only affected by my subjective vantage point of that individual, but by a moment in time. And in between my last encounter with them and today, they may have woken up and said, you know, I want to change these things about myself. I want to become a new person and could be on that path. 
but my opinion of them might remain relatively static. And this chapter gets at the fact that other people are fluid entities, and we should, to the best of our ability, observe them as such and do what we can to see the fluidity in them, which I think, if you master it, is a really beautiful experience because you're able to notice not only changes and shifts, but also to observe the really profound idea, in my opinion, that someone can be many different persons within a lifetime, and all of them are connected by a solitary identity. And the final chapter for this episode, number 46. Every day, tell at least one person something you like, admire, or appreciate about them. How often do you remember, or take time, to tell people how much you like, admire, or appreciate them? For many people, it's not often enough. In fact, when I ask people how often they receive heartfelt compliments from others, I hear answers like, I can't remember the last time I received a compliment. Hardly ever, and sadly, I never receive them. There are several reasons why we don't vocally let others know about our positive feelings towards them. I've heard excuses like, they don't need to hear me say that, they already know, and I do admire her, but I'm too embarrassed to say anything. But when you ask the would-be recipient if he or she enjoys being given genuine compliments and positive feedback, the answer, 9 times out of 10, is, I love it. Whether your reason for not giving compliments on a regular basis is not knowing what to say, embarrassment, feeling that other people already know their strengths and don't need to be told, or simply not being in the habit of doing it, it's time for a change. Telling someone something that you like, admire, or appreciate about them is a random act of kindness. It takes almost no effort once you get used to it, yet it pays enormous dividends. Many people spend their entire lifetimes wishing that other people would acknowledge them. They feel this especially about their parents, spouses, children, and friends. But even compliments from strangers feel good if they are genuine. Letting someone know how you feel about them also feels good to the person offering the compliment. It's a gesture of loving kindness. It means that your thoughts are geared toward what's right with someone. And when your thoughts are geared in a positive direction, your feelings are peaceful. The other day, I was in the grocery store and witnessed an incredible display of patience. The checkout clerk had just been chewed out by an angry customer, clearly without good cause. Rather than being reactive, the clerk diffused the anger by remaining calm. When it was my turn to pay for my groceries, I said to her, I'm so impressed at the way you handled that customer. She looked me right in the eye and said, Thank you, sir. Do you know you are the first person ever to give me a compliment at this store? It took less than two seconds to let her know, yet it was the highlight of her day and of mine. We as a society definitely should be more appreciative of positive feelings and validation. Especially since, as Carlson puts it, there's an emotional currency attached to it. I would go further and say that random acts of kindness and positive validation help construct the foundation that we need to support our core identity. A writer needs someone to say that they're a good writer in order to continue to write. And these acts that reinforce positive feelings need to continue in order to sustain this foundation. If we only hear that we're a good writer once, that little bit of praise will fade away with time. Because as I said, memory is flawed and we forget those nuances. We require these positive feelings in order to fill our emotional reserves. And if those deplete, we feel we can't pursue our passions. It's important to recognize that random acts of kindness, as trite as they sound, are integral in creating our core identity. 
And that takes practice. Because just as we have to learn how to give praise, we have to learn how to receive it. If we're to reject the emotional currency that's provided to us, then our reserves will deplete regardless. My biggest takeaway then is that we have to create the system in which we circulate this emotional currency, where we are constantly giving praise and also constantly accepting it. It's crucial that you bring up receiving praise because I know so many people who are really uncomfortable hearing compliments, and I often wonder if that's really what they mean when they say, I don't like to receive compliments, because I wonder if on some level they haven't been trained to or conditioned to receive compliments, and also in that we are all, as the previous chapter points out, a process. If your process, your life, begins with and is substantially influenced by negativity, there comes a point where you can't even trust compliments because you've been given such a negative outlook on who you are or what abilities you possess that there would be a cognitive dissonance were you to suddenly acknowledge the compliments of others. And so I agree with you that a framework should be established, an emotional marketplace as it were, in which to share that emotional currency, and I say share and marketplace because, contrary to what some might subconsciously suspect, I don't think the emotional wealth of a complementary society would accumulate with specific individuals, and would instead, in my perception, continue to spread between and among the citizens. But I also don't think we live in that kind of a world, at least presently, Additionally, I'd like to touch on the fact that compliments and genuine compliments are not necessarily one and the same, and I think a lot of people might be afraid or embarrassed by genuine compliments because they can be more nuanced and require observation, which to me is a mutually beneficial aspect of trying to give genuine compliments that you have to sincerely observe and listen to the individual or group you would like to compliment, because otherwise your remarks might feel superficial or insincere, and I can appreciate how that would make some people feel nervous or uncomfortable, because we don't want to be voyeuristic, we don't want to observe others without their consent, or feel as though we are predatory in doing so, but in my opinion, observation is so essential to really great nuances in life, and honestly, keeping yourself safe and healthy, you need to be aware of the world around you, ideally in a thorough way, which also incorporates the people who are present in the world around you. And finally, you brought up memory, which I really appreciate in the context of this chapter and these insights, because our memory is particularly sharp and hardened around negative experiences and the things that pry at our vulnerabilities or moments of insecurity, but I think a lot of us do not as readily recall the positive. And I'm certainly no neuroscientist, but in my observation, we are hardwired to remember the negative, to fixate on it, because that's an area of our lives where we can make a change and address something, whereas a positive doesn't always feel like something we can work with, or at least an issue which requires our attention, because it's already positive. But if we were to saturate, not oversaturate to clarify, our society, our world with more genuine compliments, I think all of us, regardless of how steadfast our memories might be, would recall positive and genuine experiences that were complimentary because they would occur so frequently. And that's a world I'd love to live in. But before we conclude this episode, what would you like the listeners to consider after hearing these chapters and our reactions to them? I believe the chapters that we read really put into question different elements of how to have a conversation. 
instead of thinking that a person that you had a frustrating conversation with is also a frustrating person, recognize the transience and movement that exists within every individual. And instead of reserving your own emotional currency, consider that perhaps you'll gain more by giving it away. My main question is, if we reinvent all of these different elements of conversation, will we desensitize ourselves to the good things? For me, I think the last chapter is the most prominent because it's a principle by which I live my life. And although Carlson doesn't necessarily get at this, in showing others kindness, or in this example, giving genuine compliments, you feel positive. There is a social reciprocity, even if the other person doesn't reply, when you know you've helped make someone's day or give them something kind. Carlson also doesn't look too heavily into this, but you don't know what someone else is going through. And for many of us, not only are we fighting our own battles internally, but I would wager that a lot of people feel they are in a perpetual state of retreat, uncertainty, or even losing those battles, and the radiance and warmth that comes with someone else affirming you and acknowledging you in a really positive way is more powerful than I think a lot of us realize, and that's something I would love listeners to think on. But as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Whether you are an infant listening or a centenarian, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any opinions, feedback, or thoughts of any kind, please reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to as well as sharing the show with someone you think might enjoy it and supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Pallavi Thamasu. Think twice or more.